non-benders alike. Welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney. And I'm Dante Bosco. And Varney, I hope you're feeling very bookish today because we're taking a field trip to the library. <laughs> uh, I'm a little embarrassed to say, unfortunately for my cool factor, I'm always feeling <laughs> bookish. It's part of my nerdy charm. I know. I'm feeling audio bookish. I'll tell you what, between podcasts and audiobooks, it is rare for me to pick up a book on paper now. So this is our chance to wander through a beautiful library full of ancient secrets. Now, as far as our Avatar Book 2 chronology, of course, we're coming off the episode Bitter Work, which involved a lot of bending training with Zuko and Iroh, Aang and Toph. And I want to rip this Band-Aid off right away, even though, who am I ripping it off for? Everyone already knows. We don't see a lot of Zuko in this episode. I know. And not a lot. We don't see none. <laughs> as far as we know, Zuko's still screaming at the wind, trying to get himself electrocuted on the top of a mountain somewhere. I think I was when I was on Avatar Wiki, as I always am, because I like to check in on what everyone has to say about this episode. I think I saw a thing that said that you are credited in this episode as if you appear in it, which isn't always true with other episodes. So I'm not sure about that, but um, I might have did an extra voice or something somewhere. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I made a sound for the one of the sandbenders. Yeah, for sure. I remember that sound from the episode. All right. But it's a great episode. I'm a scholar. I haven't been in the library in years, but it was nice (laughs) to visit this library. Okay, and uh, are we doing this by ourselves? No, we are not. Not even a little bit, because Varney, <laughs> today we are joined by an old friend who we've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while now, and he's going to help us tour the library today. Nice. I'm talking about writer, podcaster, Phil Yu, founder and editor of Angry Asian Men and the co-author of the new book, Rise, a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now. And I just so happen to be on the cover. Rufio so happens to be on the cover of the book. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my good friend Phil Yu in the house. Well, well, well. What's up, Phil? How you doing? Hello, hello. Hello, Phil. Thank you so much for doing this. Such a pleasure. Wow, Rufio on the cover. Oh, yeah. I'm fanboying out right now. So excited to be here. Uh, Yes, uh, Dante and I are old friends, actually. Uh, But of course, I've admired Dante for a long time, which led us to putting his face among many on the cover of our book. Among many. But Janet, I got to say up front, um, I'm such a fan of your work, but I have to say a recent fan because I only recently watched The Legend of Korra, despite having seen Avatar many years ago and many, many times since. Sure. But Korra is something that I recently let myself enjoy because in a kind of self-imposed delayed gratification... I held off on oh. watching Korra because I was like, if I watch Korra, then this world will end for me. There's no more yeah, stories to tell. I totally So get I that. held off on watching it for the oh. longest time. But now, at least at this point, my uh, Avatarverse sort of storytelling now is I've consumed it all. Yeah. I think you've yes. timed it out perfectly. I mean, we just found out recently we're getting movies made. So you already knew about Avatar Studios. I mean... This is perfect because you waited up to a point where you can now rest assured that your universe is incomplete and that is going to be flushed out with yet more stories from the brilliant minds behind these two shows. So I think you played it perfectly. I don't think anyone would argue otherwise. (laughs) So exciting. (laughs) And, you know, you were talking about watching it years ago. When did you first find the show? I mean, I was already an adult when I did the show, so you had to be an adult when the show came out. Like, how did you come across it and all that kind of stuff? 
Uh, you know, it was one of those cartoons that you would hear about. Like, you know, there's this growing fan base. And I was like, okay, now's my time to watch Avatar in its entirety. And just being totally overwhelmed, like, oh, this is not just the kid show that I kind of assumed it was. I mean, it is a kid right. show, but so much more. It is deeply sophisticated, so much more. The character work, the sort of the serialized storytelling, and then also just the issues of war and imperialism and all things that we've talk about when they try to convince somebody, no, you got to right. watch Avatar. <laughs> totally. We should just pass out a pitch sheet yeah. for anybody who's trying to get somebody to watch Avatar. It's like, here are the five <laughs> points you can hit. You can use this script if you want to. But it's all true. Yes. You know, when somebody finally discovers Avatar for themselves, they're like, oh, again, like it's hitting somebody for the first time. And you're yes. like, oh, I get it. I yes. know. I'm having that same feeling now watching these episodes again, the rewatch. And this is really the first time I'm watching it in chronological order like this. And again, just as a fan now, all these years later to like look at it and go, wow, it's so good. Like this is a masterpiece. <laughs> but even back then, because see, me and Phil go back, Phil's kind you know, he's a thought leader voice within the Asian American community, especially within Los Angeles and the arts community and the academic community. Uh, how are you feeling about representation, about this story that's inspired by not just one Asian culture, but several Asian cultures and Asian themes and Asian anime in and of itself? How is it hitting you the first time and how do you think it, it feels all these years later? Well, it's kind of a tricky subject, a potential minefield whenever you talk about anything, any kind of story told by non-Asians. I mean, let's be real. Let's, uh, who describe it as something like Asian-inspired or you right. know, <laughs> Asian-fusion-inspired. And you're like, okay. Like, certain red flags do go up in that instance. Yes, and you're very like, fair. Okay, what am I getting into? And you know, those red flags were present when I started Avatar. But watching it and really seeing sort of the care and right. the attention to detail that they really put into this, especially when something like, you know, like martial arts, but also the aesthetic details of each of the nations, you're like, oh, that looks right. like, you know, in the Earth Kingdom, you go through and you're like, oh, that looks like a Korean hanbok, like, you know, what they're wearing, you know, and you're like, they've done the research, you know what I mean? I, and right. I really respect a lot of the, the imagery and the research that has gone into creating this very original, entirely new sort of true interpretation of that word, of fusion, yes. right, where they've done it I right. You know? So I love much that. respect. Yeah. Yeah, much respect. Credit to Mike and Brian. And we're the, taking the word fusion back, Phil. Yeah, we're taking the word fusion back. I felt it when I was doing the show, because for me too, and even though we were before this whole kind of golden era of what, what Asians are in pop culture right now, and I'm always weary walking into something like, okay, am I going to be doing some crazy accent and doing some weird stuff? Which, you know, I came up in the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, so it was just par for the course. But to work with Mike and Brian and seeing the care and the detail that they had and respect they had going before the even show blew up, it's like how they approached it, literally having Sifu Kisu and we're meeting the martial artists and you're meeting the other artists going into Asia and getting animators out there and how they talked about it. But representation isn't necessarily like copying exact, and it's not like everyone has to be exactly what they're playing. It's about artists in front of behind the camera approaching these characters with respect and detail and care and not just kind of like, we can do whatever we want, you know, that kind of thing. And so even early in, in the process, just working with Mike and Brian and seeing them kind of take the care. We want all artists, whether you're being inspired by, or even if you're from your culture, like approach the work with that respect and care. And that's all we ask for as like people of color depicting or telling stories about people of color. It's like, can you approach it with some respect and not just feel like none of it matters? 
Yeah, Phil, I would love to know, too, when you were working on the book, you know, as you're sort of diving deep into analysis and chronology, did you feel a sense of improvement? Did it feel like, oh, there's some really high points in the early 90s, but I'm glad to say there are more of them as we come to now? Or did you feel like, you know, I was expecting maybe more? I think the genesis of the book actually really kind of illustrates what we were trying to do and how we discovered what went in the book. Uh, my co-authors and I, um, Jeff Yang and Philip Wang, the book was kind of inspired by conversations that we had about Asian American representation in Hollywood. You know, when Crazy Rich Asians came out in 2018, it was like this landmark signal moment where everyone was like celebrating, like, wow, we've arrived. Asians are, they can make fun movies that make money, et cetera, et cetera. And then like every bit of press about the movie always said like, this is the first movie of its kind with an all Asian cast in 20 some odd years since the Joy Luck Club in the 90s, right? Wow. Um, everyone always says that. And you know, you hear that enough times and you're like, wait a minute, that makes it sound like <laughs> Asians have done nothing. in be- Like right, they made right, the Joy Luck Club. I know. Nothing happened. Phil, <laughs> how short is that book? It's a pamphlet, you guys. <laughs> it just made it like nothing. And then Crazy Rotations, right? Yeah. And we were like, yo, we know that that's not true. And so for sure, we kind of tasked ourselves with chronicling all of that. And it might not be stuff that the mainstream really shone a light on or embraced, But like in the Asian American community, we know like these were really landmark moments that we wanted to celebrate. Stuff like Dante Bosco in Hook. We were like, (laughs) that is an iconic character that we need to celebrate, you know? And and so things like that, like those moments like that, that meant a lot to us. We wanted to make sure that stuff got canonized, chronicled, and we told those stories. So it really was like a love letter to all of the- Such a cool book. Look, you don't realize you're making history when you're living it, right? So that's what we wanted to do to make sure that stuff got legitimized. Oh, I love that. I'm so excited to have both of you on the podcast at once. I mean, one of you hosts the podcast, so it makes sense. But um, and that's one of the things, you know, I have been um, aware of you and I'm a fan of you for many years because I've known Dante for a really long time now. And he talked about you so early on that I was like, angry Asian man, tell me more. Um, It's obviously a provocative handle. And so I got to know kind of your perspectives. And that's one of the things I love and admire so much about Dante as a human being is just I love showing up to a con with him and being at his side and seeing the positive impact that he has had on so many young Asian Americans and worldwide and really honoring that and really respecting it and being an ambassador of this is what's possible and here's how you build it and you might have to build all of it, but you don't have to do it by yourself. But you might need your community to all do it because it's possible that mainstream culture is not going to be paying attention in the moment when it should be. And so you got to make it yourself. And I just love that. Um, I'm so honored to be a part of this conversation at all on the podcast. So thank you. Oh, both. Thank you, Janet. A lot of love going on in this podcast. You guys. A lot of love going what on. What can I say? <laughs> you thought you were going to be fanboying. Sorry, Phil. Went ahead and took that crown from you. Try yeah. to win it back. He I dare you. He's an angry Asian man, but he's not always angry. <laughs> Okay, I feel like we've gotten a really, really great sense of when Avatar came into your life and sort of how you felt about it since and obviously the perfect timing of uh, now having seen Korra and knowing that there's more to come. Do you have what we will call a favorite adversary, if you will? Well, that's got to be hands down. It's Azula. I mean, Azula is one of the truly terrifying characters of, of all of television, honestly. Just whenever she's on the screen, you're like, Oh my gosh, like what is she going to do? Like she is never ever like incompetent, never never at a yeah. loss, always in control. 
And I would say that even in her final moments in the series, like she's never really truly like no. power to power bending wise. Yeah. Just, oh. just the most potent gifted. Uh, character. Yeah. Gifted and just terrifying. Really terrifying. <laughs> the best part of this podcast is the blurred line between Dante as Zuko and Dante as Dante. You can hear him <laughs> def- in defense of Zuko. He's like, yeah, she's she's great. She's I hate pretty, her, but she's pretty great. powerful. Sure. I love yeah. Her, but yeah I hate her. <laughs> it's like I hear some defense of Zuko going on right now, and I love it. Well, I have to say Azula is at the top of many people's lists, and I think it's a very, very good choice. And I have talked a lot about how fierce she is. And, you know, it's one of those characters that we find, too, people really want to talk about and sort of try to process who she is and why she is the way she is. And I think the young people that are discovering the show for the first time now there's an immediacy to them wanting to understand if they should have empathy for her. And I bring that up because every time we meet Avatar fans who are very, you know, if they're like kiddos or if they're teenagers, I always feel like the world is going to be okay because they're so thoughtful and there's just so much compassion in that community. And so I love talking about Azula with people because she is one of those characters that, you know, sort of gets under your skin and you're like, okay, is it nature or nurture? Is it both? Does she deserve redemption? All of those questions that also show you that you're watching or listening or learning about something really good, right? Because it causes you to have those provocative questions. I do think that, you know, there are moments in the series where they venture into trying to empathize with Azula or try to understand her a little bit. Like they dip their toe into that. But I also think it's okay to have a character who is just bad. I mean, just Uh just scary (laughs) and evil and powerful. I think that's a good lesson too. You know what? Hands off, you know? Yeah. You're going to meet people in the world, kids, that may just be bad people. (laughs) Exactly. There's a lot of different types of people in the world. Um, Dante, I think you better hit up Phil with a couple of the other biggie questions, and then we will for sure dig into this recap. Well, of course, we got to go with what is one of your favorite hybrid animals throughout the series? I... uh... I've always really liked the platypus bear because it's, they show it as being so frightening and scary. But when you just look at it, you're like, it's a, what a funny looking animal. Just You look yeah. at it, you're like, I guess I'm scared. Right. I guess and I'm the platypus scared. itself is a hybrid animal. And then they put him with another animal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's putting a hat on a hat, as they say in the writing business. Exactly. And um, who do you ship? Do you have a ship? Oh, Okay. I have some thoughts on this. Here we go. Yeah. She said, rubbing her hands together in anticipation. Here's a, the juicy stuff. So I've never been really crazy about Katara and Aang. Like, you know, spoiler alert, like think? getting eventually getting you together. Think? But yeah. And I, I was always partial to Zuko and Katara, honestly. Like that. We call that Zutara around these parts. Zutara, yes. But as that relationship matures, you saw the places where that could have ventured into uh, something romantic. Yes. So I like that. I just felt like they matched in a way that was like their opposites, but matched, you know. Right. That said, I also really like Sokka and Suki together, right? When they yeah. eventually get together near the end, how they work together, it is so yes. complete and so gratifying. Um, and I, I love that. However, I would have liked to have seen a little dalliance, maybe, of Tai Lee and Sokka. Because... Ah. There are moments where Tylee notes, she said, she's cute, you know, and it happens more than once, right? And I would have loved a little side episode somewhere along the way that could have been like, 
little exploration of that because that I thought that was interesting. Love that. Interesting. And she becomes a you know foreshadow report. She makes her way to the Kyoshi Warriors ultimately along the line, and and then I think we got to hit him with the grand. Well, the big question is. If you were a bender, what kind of bender would you be, Phil? What element are you bending? <sighs> I've agonized over this question a lot as well. And uh, Dante, you know me. You know that I'm a big Bruce Lee fan, right? Yes, you are. And a big thing with Bruce is that uh, saying is be like water. That's and true. being able to go with changes and shift. And He is the dragon. He is the dragon, yes. Water bending would be a natural choice for me because I subscribe to that idea. However... <laughs> I've Ooh, really I interrogated myself and thought about myself <laughs> and my demeanor and everything like that. And like in the end, I'm like, it'd be fire. It would, yeah, it would be. Fire Nation, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Angry Asian man. Fire Nation. Who would have thought? You teed that up so beautifully as Dante's just like, here comes another Water Tribe member. I'm going to just, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to embrace it or accept it. And then we get the however. <laughs> Having listened to this show, I knew that Dante would be like, yes. fire, fire, fire. And and oh, I was like, so I'm good. not going to do this for Dante's sake, but I, so I really good. have to be honest, right? And yeah. Just yeah. that anger-driven emotion where the, the elements come out in that way. I'm like, let me be honest. Like, yeah. I have a little bit of that fire underneath me. And being able to bend like that would be very, it would be like a stress relief, honestly. I think. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, let's get into the library just very quickly uh, for our, our brief, brief overview. The gang meets a, a professor who has been in search of this very important library, and it is hidden somewhere in the Siwang Desert. So the gang sets out to find it. They do find it. They find out a lot about it and about the contents of the library and about the gatekeeper, if you will, of the library. And then, you know, we sort of have some stuff happen on the surface that Toph and Appa are forced to contend with that uh, are very challenging as well. This wonderful episode is written by our friend John O'Brien and directed by our friend Giancarlo Volpe. Wonderful guest cast. Not a ton of people in this episode, but just a quick shout out to Rafael Svarge, who plays the professor, and then Hector Elizondo, the wonderful actor. He is the knowledge spirit, and he does just an absolutely magnificent job. Um and, you know, one of the cool things about the library is when you hear Zhao talking about finding this library, I think for most of us on our first watch, you know, I don't know that we put a pin in that. There's a lot happening in the Siege of the North episodes when he happens to drop that little gem. And it might not be the thing that stays in your mind. And I love that it takes this long, you know, we hopscotch a few episodes for it to pay off. Phil, did you feel that way? Do you remember when you first saw it and were you like, the library, eh? Yeah, it's what's really interesting about this episode is that it is kind of acting as a center for a lot of action that has further implications beyond like past and future, you know what I mean, for this yes. world, you know? Like maybe it's because knowledge is the center of all of it, but it has celestial implications. It has like, yes. you know, very tiny like human to human implications as well, you know, in terms of Zhao doing the research and so here in the center of the desert, buried under all this sand, is where yeah. like some very important knowledge is dropped and continues to drop. Oh, I love that. Well, uh, Bosco, why don't you help us walk into this episode? Okay, let's go. So, the library. You can say this episode comes in hot with the comedy. We join <laughs> Team Avatar in what seems like a barren desert, but Aang 
quickly helps reveal that there's more going on that meets the eye. In this case, <laughs> prairie dogs who pop up their heads to match the notes Aang is playing from his recorder. Barney, don't even try to tell me you didn't love this because I know you and the music and the right. animals. Come on. <laughs> it does come in hot with a comedy. It is so funny. I have to watch it three to four times. I can't. I have to watch the whole sequence of the of the little prairie dogs. Uh, and I, I'm calling them prairie dogs. I guess I don't know if they're officially prairie dogs. The little ground, I don't know what those hogs. things are. They look like whack-a-moles to me. They make me laugh so hard. <laughs> like slightly off key. <laughs> it's just great. So love it. Please go on. So, Marnie, you and Aang are having a great old time with the little prairie dog things. But Sokka's <laughs> eager to get moving. And what's the plan? Toph says the plan is everyone will pick a mini vacation to go on. And Sokka's frustrated. He's not down with that at all. And then Aang has a great line where he says, he's been working as hard as he can. I've been training my arrow off. They all agree that they'll take their mini vacations. And then they'll get serious about making a long-term plan for defeating the Fire Nation. Katara gets to pick the first vacation. The Misty Palms Oasis, which sounds great, but it isn't. Yeah. When they get there, it's, a, <laughs> uh, it's less than great, you guys. It's a real dry and it's full of some sketchy characters. Like the, it becomes a smaller pond, um, but they see some sketchy characters in the area. They go into the local watering hole, the bar, and they end up meeting Professor Zay, head of anthropology at Bossing Say University who's super stoked to meet a real-life air nomad. So Sokka seizes the opportunity to get a more current map than they've got, and this leads to a very interesting conversation. Yeah, we hear about this professor, Professor Zay's long search. I've found lost civilizations all over the Earth Kingdom, but I haven't managed to find the crown jewel, Wan Shitong's library. You spent years walking through the desert? To find some guy's library? This library is more valuable than gold, little lady. It is said to contain a vast collection of knowledge. And knowledge is priceless. The professor goes on to tell them about the spirit of Wan Chi Tong and his fox cohort, who apparently gathered books from all over the world so that humans could better understand themselves through knowledge. So the question is, could this library then have this map that might help Team Avatar defeat the Fire Nation? Always good to have a little more information. You know, Sokka's always looking for tools, right? Whether the tool is his boomerang or he's coming up with some ingenious way of getting them out of a scrape. Obviously, he strongly believes in tools like maps and is feeling that frustration of there's got to be a way for us to better access the world and to figure out where the Fire Nation is and, and how to get them. So he definitely wants to spend his vacation at the library. It is a wonderful anime moment where it's like he's a superhero the library superhero, which is very, very satisfying. But the Siwang Desert is very vast, and the professor says he's nearly died every time that he's tried to find this library. This desert is apparently uncrossable. Or is it, what if you got a sky bison? Mm-hmm. Right? This is a game changer. Sky bison hasn't been seen same as Air Nomad. So it's not like this is normal. You know, it's like, oh, now the professor gets to also see this other mystical beast that he guaranteed has never seen before. So they hop up on Appa. They intro him to Appa. And the mysterious folks in Tan, we find out, are sandbenders. I have to say they seem uncomfortably interested in Appa. 
Hope that's not a foreshadow report. Um, the gang flies across the Sihuang Desert. It is very hot. It is very sunny. I would say not my favorite weather. I like a little cloud cover. Possibly even it's a little boring based on kind of how everyone's responding as they're just lying there on Appa, except for the professor who is very into this amazing creature that he is finally getting to see in real life. He does not seem as impressed by Momo. I guess that's fine. Uh, and and Toph is doubting that this library is even real. And he, the professor is like, maybe it isn't, essentially. He's like, maybe those rumors aren't even real. And it, there's that moment where you're like, I almost wish you wouldn't have said that because now you're saying it at a time that is far too late. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and, he's like, and they're and like, then, didn't you say you almost died a couple of times trying to get there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it's real, great. If it's not, meh, I tried. And then Toph has one of her amazing Toph moments where she she's like, there it is. And everyone's like, what? And she's like, that's what I would say if I could see you idiots. It's great. Uh, but then they finally do see something. But it's just this little small turret rising out of the sand. How can that possibly be the library? It's too small. But then they see a fox kind of creature carrying a scroll. It goes inside. So maybe this is only the tip of the iceberg which means something different when you're talking to Water Tribe members. So they kind of figured this out because obviously the library is still there. How are they going to get in? Right, Phil? Well, Professor Zay is, this is not going to stop him. He's not daunted at all. He's ready yeah. to excavate this massive structure using a tiny hand shovel. <laughs> Looks like beach toys, right? But that's not going to let him stop him. So uh, I suppose if you're standing on top of something that you've been searching for your entire career, some sand is not going to get in your way. Yeah. But Toph senses that the whole library is actually still totally intact under the sand. So the gang decides to follow the fox through the turret and see what happens. Um, I actually really like this because it demonstrates um, kind of some of the ways like Toph's powers, her bending works, you know, yes. and the sand doesn't really, it makes it really hard for her. Otherwise, like, you know, having the bare feet and everything, she can see the whole structure underneath the sand, you know, because that's, a solid structure, but yeah. I love those little nuances about like, oh, this is not really a great environment for her particular yeah. style of bending, right? I love that too. I totally agree. It's that share me the details moments, but it's those details that really build the universe that makes it feel so real because there is so much attention to those ideas. And we always talk about the rules, like have your universe's rules because people will really notice if you don't. And that's what takes you out of the story when you're like, oh, I guess they can just do this now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love yeah. it. And so I love that you I really sense the intention of the creators and of the writers in this. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Anyway, we got you off track. Sorry, Phil. That's okay. So yeah, uh, the gang's going to go down, but Appa's going to stay above ground too, because uh, we all remember what happened in the Cave of Two Lovers. Uh, yeah. Appa doesn't do well underground. It's not about that life. I, but I do love this long take that allows... The, for <laughs> this great awkward moment between Appa and Toph, where Toph's just like, and they stretch it out. They really let it sit yeah. there. And, and then she's like, what's up? That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Perfect Toph, yeah. Oh, so, um, so the rest of the gang scales up and then down into the turret. They rappel down to the library, and it's it's uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's just it's a library. And if you like libraries, this is the library for you. Um, yes. But they've only made it to the floor when they hear this rustling sound and they got to hide because it is a giant owl <laughs> that looks at the rope 
and then announces like i know you're here and you need to get out of here that freaked me out i'm not gonna lie when the owl talked (laughs) i was like what yeah and he has yeah. a kind of a cool voice, and it's like, yeah, you're freaking me out, Owl. An Owl plus Hector Elizondo's voice, yes. then that's like right. super freaky. Yes. <laughs> Are you the spirit who brought this library to the physical world? Indeed. I am one Shi Tong, he who knows 10,000 things, and you are obviously humans, which, by the way, are no longer permitted in my study. What do you have against humans? Hmm. <laughs> Humans only bother learning things to get the edge on other humans. Like that firebender who came to this place a few years ago, looking to destroy his enemy. So, who are you trying to destroy? But yeah, so we learned that the owl is indeed Wan Chi Tong. He who knows 10,000 things. Is that a lot of things, though? <laughs> was, I was also expression. thinking like 10,000 seems like... like... I started thinking, how many things do I know? I must know at least 5,000 like things. When the ransom is like, and we're asking for $10,000. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it Touché. is a lot, but is it that much? Uh, but um, as we heard in the clip, he's really tired of humans using knowledge to hurt others. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, he's not wrong, honestly, in my Everybody mind. Everybody are the good guy. Yep. Well, Sokka tries to get around this fact that they actually are there to get the jump on somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't go well because yeah. you're talking to the guy who knows 10,000 things. Uh, uh-huh. And so, <laughs> but Aang, who is, you know, indeed the bridge between the human and the spirit worlds, he does his avataring and tries to smooth things over. And then Wan Chi Tong ends up agreeing that they can stay if they contribute knowledge of their own to the library. So Professor Zay, he has come correct. To prove your worth as scholars, you have to contribute some worthwhile knowledge. Please accept this tome as a donation to your library. First edition. Very nice. Uh, this guy knows what's up, right? Um, yeah. And Katara parts ways with her waterbending scroll. I mean, guys, uh, do you remember what they went through she to stole get it. this yeah. scroll? Like, <laughs> well, now she's a master, so she has it all in her body, and mm-hmm. she stole it mm-hmm. anyway. So here, take this thing I got for free. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's time to part ways with this, you know? So that, yeah. I feel like that's a genuine great piece of knowledge to offer the library. And like you were saying, Phil, the idea of this episode being that touch point from which so many things kind of gather and stay or move forward. I love that. because now I have that in my head when we talk about, you know, stuff like this in the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, Aang has his wanted poster, which is <laughs> far less impressive. <laughs> that's an artifact, an avatar wanted poster that thing is classic good point i'd frame that yeah, yeah. i'd buy that at flea market no way <laughs> yeah. um and Sokka ties a knot which i oh. thought was kind of a cool nautical piece of knowledge probably from his tribe yes right yeah watchy tongue is not as impressed but i was like yo i think that's pretty good i don't yeah. know but wong shi tong has a line where he's just like you're not very bright are you Uh, and he lets them go and uh, peruse the library. Yeah, that's a real case of having the headliner open because (laughs) you go from the first edition book and then it's like, oh, here's the slightly almost as cool, amazing thing, which is this amazing waterbending scroll, which is this great contribution. Like, and here's a wanted poster and here's a knot. Listen, if they'd started with a knot, maybe he would appreciate it more. But unfortunately, (laughs) everybody else might have kind of killed that for him not fair i mean he has ten thousand and four things now 
Okay, so as the rest of the gang is doing the stuff inside, we got to check in with Toph and Appa outside. Toph's trying to make conversation with Appa. So do you like flying? Toph tells Appa about how the sand actually makes it hard for her to see in a way she normally does on solid earth. Mm -hmm. Then we go back to our friends in the library. Aang's reading about lion turtles, which look very wild looking animal and it's a good foreshadow report foreshadow report katara's uh reading about the avatar's past lives and sokka fully pockets a scroll heads over to a special exhibit first of all sokka's just taking books all right we all been to libraries you just can't take books he was so mad when katara stole the waterbending scroll too so i guess it's okay when he does it i would not be stealing from a talking owl that's me personally i'm not doing it agree but Sokka heads over uh, to a special exhibit, the darkest day in Fire Nation history. They head to the Fire Nation section to find out more, but the whole thing is burnt down. I mean, those are my people, but come on, dude. Come on. You're going to burn the information? It's a bad sign when someone burns a library. (laughs) Let's put it that way. I mean, look at the just general phenomenon of burning books. I mean, why would anybody do that? It's because they know that the books hold knowledge, which is power. And so let's just say this. When people burn books, I feel like they're on the wrong side of history because there's something in those books that they're scared of. I'm very comfortable agreeing with that, Phil. That's pretty good. So that's your Fire Nation for you. Good job, buddy. (laughs) Now. Now, yes, and it's destroyed. There's no books to illuminate. The whole Fire Nation history section is just burnt crisp. But there's a fox trying to help. He takes him to his awesome sunflower stone that ends up opening the door to secret chamber. I mean, he literally points like a dog. Love it. Is it dog, fox, wolf? They're officially called knowledge seekers, actually. Good call. Uh, Thank you for that. Knowledge seekers. The knowledge seeker. Point him to the secret chamber. And then... Some real cool Indiana Jones vibes are going on here, but it's it's also an amazing like feat of astronomy, a giant planetarium with moving stars. It seems to be some kind of elaborate calendar of some sort. At the center of the device, we see a, the yin-yang sign, or as we think of it, twin law symbols. They enter in some dates on the parchment sock is found, and they realize... Hey, wait, what happened to the sun? Great, you must have broken it. It's not broken. The sun is behind the moon. It's a solar eclipse. It's literally the darkest day in Fire Nation history. Now I get it. Something awful happened on that day. I don't know what, but I do know why. Firebenders lose their bending during a solar eclipse. (gasps) It's the Fire Nation version of what happened to the waterbenders during the lunar eclipse. Sokka's thrilled. They've got the jump on the Fire Nation, except a very unsurprised Wan Chi Tong is there, which is probably not good. Yeah, I mean, he called it. He for sure said that this is why they were there and this is why humans come there in general. No one ever finds a library. So he has very limited experience once he has buried the library. is having limited experience of what humans do anyway, right? So the fact that he basically Zhao comes takes a bunch of knowledge, burns the entire Fire Nation section. Wan Chi Tong needs to keep it safe. And then the very next people, you would imagine, right? Because no one's been able to find it. The very next people who come totally are also doing the same thing, which is very sad. And it's like you were saying earlier, Phil, like it's bittersweet because 
you are like, I, I, I know, but uh, you see, it's different in this case because dot, dot, dot. And it's like from his perspective, you know, with his kind of limited experience, he really is getting proven right, like 100% of the time, basically. So he's understandably furious and he really dresses them down. It's so well described. It's one of those many moments of the show. We've talked about it before. You know, it kind of reminds me of the equalists in Korra, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, you do have these opposing views and they both make sense. And you really do go, oh, no, everyone thinks they're the good side. And that maybe is how violence perpetuates through time. So he is not wrong. I mean, in this context, we do feel like we're justified because Aang is is saying, you know, we're just trying to protect the ones we love. We know that this is a very one-sided, very strong, corrupt leadership that's happening now. It doesn't have to last forever. And Aang is, you know, appealing to him. We're just trying to protect the ones we love. Wan Chitong is not playing favorites. He just beats his huge, powerful wings and says, I know. I'm taking my knowledge back. No one will ever abuse it again. He's sinking the building! We've got to get out of here! I'm afraid I can't allow that. You already know too much. Then he turns into this kind of owl-dragon combo, which is extremely intimidating. What's up with that neck? He was already intimidating. He didn't need to drag it out on him. Then up topside, Toph, of course, realizes very quickly that the library is sinking and she tries as hard as she can to get it to stop. And she's very powerful. You can see she's having an effect, but she's not gaining that much headway. We already know how difficult the sand is for her. Um, the spirit is bearing down on the gang beneath. Aang fights him with airbending. He's able to buy him a little time by sort of knocking him down the many floors uh, of the open space of the library. And Sokka and Aang decide... You know, Sokka sort of leads the way like we have to find what we were looking for because now we're so close and we're not going to have this opportunity ever again. This means everything. And so they take that risk. They go back to the planetarium and back on the surface. Now we have sandbenders. Thanks for complicating this sandbenders as if it's not stressful enough. They are approaching rapidly. It's taking Sokka forever to figure out the date of the solar eclipse down below. Finally, they get it. They realize this event is just a few months away. And up top, the sandbenders are stealing Appa. And Toph is so torn. She's trying to hold up the turret. And they're stealing Appa. And she wants to stop them. But if she does that, then the thing's... I'm so stressed out. Phil, help me. Help me. Help. Don't make me put this down. No. Stop sinking. I wish I had better news for you, Janet, uh, but the uh, the Sandbenders, they get away with Appa. She had to choose. She, she made a decision in the midst of war. It happens. It's know? interesting because up to now, her relationship, with, particularly with Appa, has been kind of just like, uh, you know, like she doesn't really care for the air travel because, you know, it puts her away from the ground. Yeah. She's always been kind of like sort of ambivalent about this animal. But in this moment where she's supposed to save him, you know. She let him down, and yeah, she, uh, she is genuinely heartbroken about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, meanwhile, inside the horror movie continues. Wanchi Tong <laughs> is hunting down Katara. Like, I mean, it's oh my god! This show it ventures into horror territory, like with creatures and scary moments. It's very effective. Yes, uh, particularly with spirits and things like that. So, 
Sand is rushing into the building. Katara faces off with the Wan Chi Chong, the owl spirit. And he's like, oh, you've got waterbending styles? I've studied them all. Uh, and so I guess you can count those amongst things. the 10,000 oh, things. <laughs> he's so arrogant, that moment. Oh. But Aang and Sokka, they rain down from above and they yeah. knock him out, right? Yeah. Uh, so they just knocked out an owl, guys. That's, that's, that's great. <laughs> um, so with a book. Did he knock out the, the knowledge owl with a book? That's ironic. Knowledge is power. <laughs> knowledge is power. There you go. So they're trying to get out and they're trying to grab the professor, but he is not leaving. He'd rather just stay there in this place that he's looked. I mean, he's looking for this his entire career, right? And he find, yeah. This is actually the best day of his life. Honestly, yeah. He, yeah. he met uh, an air nomad. He met Appa and he got to his life's work. He's here. So he's like, I'm not leaving. That's intense. But I'm also like, respect, man. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know what I mean? I like, liked it. Well, um, it's almost like it's the captain goes down with the ship if the captain only got to meet his ship moments before right. it sunk. <laughs> and still, you know, that devotion is there. Like, I can't. This is the pinnacle what, of know, his life. Would... He's going to be holding a book to his last dying breath, which, <laughs> yeah. wow, but also. He died doing what respect, he loves. man. Yeah, yeah, he died doing what he loves. That's right. Aang is trying to airbend everybody out with his glider before it's too late. And they just make it out. Thanks, of course, in big part to Toph, who's basically been holding up this building, fighting against the will of a spirit. But they make it up. And this part is you can see Aang as soon as he gets up. He's immediately looking around like, wait, something's off. We got it. There's a solar eclipse coming. The Fire Nation's in trouble now. Where's Appa? And he realizes it's bad. And unfortunately... It's a bit of a cliffhanger. That's the end of the episode. This season, man, this season is relentless with its cliffhangers. There is just like not a lot of the episodes in book two end cheerfully for the gang. I mean, it is very fraught. There is a lot of stuff that gets thrown at them. There's a lot of stuff that gets thrown at Zuko. Some of it he throws at himself. But book two is very, there's just a lot of stress (laughs) in a great way. It's so well done. They stepped up the drama. The stakes are getting higher, for sure, all that. I mean, I would argue this particular episode is kind of the beginning of the series really heading in like a really steep, different direction where it gets very dark. It gets much more mature. The characters are tested in a way that they have to do a lot of growing up from here on out, I think. And it actually like feels a little bit more like life and death, you know, like from this moment on it, to me, it's a it's a marker of a different direction for the show. Totally agree. Definitely well said. There are a couple of light moments. Um, I'm so grateful for those prairie dogs. Uh, <laughs> at least I have those prairie dogs. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing where this episode starts and where it ends because it's. Com- you think it's like, oh, it's going to be a fun one, right? We want to go on mini vacations. Uh-huh. And it ends <laughs> yeah. with them losing a valuable member of the group. And you're like, you're so right. Yeah. It's a real bait and switch. Um, I'm going to do a quick one question quiz. Uh, there are a ton of great callbacks to past episodes. Phil, you said it best. You know, it is this sort of place where many things gather from the past and project into the future. Uh, what does Aang speculate might have been his community's agricultural product when Wan Chitong asks, and uh, where did we see this before? Why do we know why he says that? I believe he says, was it was it fruitcakes? Little fruit pies. Fruit pies, yeah. 
Uh, he said that because him and uh, his master were flinging fruit pies at people. Monkeyatsu. Right, in a flashback. Monkeyatsu. You totally nailed it. That was many episodes ago, and you totally nailed it. Well done. Need a vacation but not sure where to go? Are you tired of all the glamour and glitz of a real resort? Looking for something a little rough around the edges? Trade pretty for gritty at the Misty Palms Oasis. Enjoy the desert views without the pesky distraction of a tower of ice. Experience the natural wonder of bar fights with strangers. It's all here for you as you make your way through the Misty Palms Oasis and on to anywhere else. The Misty Palms Oasis, under new management. So, Animal Crossing-wise... Love those musical prairie dogs. Obviously, if we're counting our spirit world in our Animal Crossings, we do have this very fierce spirit owl, Wanchi Tong, who is an owl who seems to also be a sort of owl serpent. Um, we see a picture of the lion turtle in the book. We already quickly whispered foreshadow report to that. I think that just mm. takes us to talking about most valuable bending and most valuable non-bending in the episode. I'm so interested to hear what you both think, starting with bending. I mean, for me, it's got to be tough. Me too. I mean, ultimately, she lost Appa in the process, but like, right. there is no way they got out of there in time. Yeah. No, if she wasn't they're dilly dallying the whole time. Right? We yeah. have to double back. She's holding it up. I mean, I'm sure Aang does not agree with this choice at all, but she had to make the choice for the greatest good for the greatest number, which yeah. was the gang. We love Appa. We, 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 we can't lose Appa, but I mean, that's one Appa, and that's like the rest of the gang. They'd be in quicksand. They'd be done. Well, that's a, such a great point, too, Dante, because that is sort of a good reflection of Aang as a boy and Aang as an avatar, right? As Aang the boy, he doesn't want her to have chosen them. As Aang the boy, the thing that is the most immediate in front of him that he's now facing is the fact that Appa's gone. As the avatar, would he probably have made the same choice as Toph? You know what I mean? And I love that stuff. I also like episodes where they just show how powerful Toph is. You know, holding up this building. I mean, obviously she's not doing the best work here because of the sand, but I just love it when she gets to let loose. And this is more of a defensive thing, but like in episodes past, you know, there's just ones where she's kicks butt and uh, (laughs) I just love any moment where she's just because she's one of the only characters who in their bending doesn't show a lot of restraint I mean Uh like and I love that I love that (laughs) she's a goat she's the greatest of all time come on love it a thousand percent yeah so most valuable non-bending moment I mean Sokka really puts the work in in getting this information right it to the extent that you know he's can't airbend so he doesn't have a way out at all without ang right um, and yet he's the one who's like we have to do this even though we might be facing right. our own death like we have to try that so i would go with him but i don't know i also want to give it to the professor mm. the fact that he said you guys there's this library Sokka didn't even have the idea of his field trip until he met this professor who was like, there's this library with all the knowledge in the world. And then, well, then that's where we got to go. Without the professor, there's no episode. There's no, you know, the real non-bending is knowledge itself. It was the professor's knowledge that 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 was there. (laughs) Then they get to uh the place and it's knowledge bending is the episode. All right. Knowledge bending. The fifth bending. (laughs) The fifth (laughs) element, knowledge bender. That's really interesting. Boy, you went real big picture on us with knowledge being a valuable non-bending moment. Um, That's hard to argue with. I think it's Professor and Sokka. 
I'll give it to him as a duo. Sokka was definitely the instigator. Let's give it up for knowledge. I think knowledge, knowledge. is the winner. What about knowledge? <laughs> knowledge, the best. We salute you. Uh, well, this was a treat. Phil, you brought so much to this conversation. I hope you'll come back. Uh, I'm so glad that this was the episode that ended up being the one that we could have you on. We've been wanting to have you on. And I love this is such a key episode. And so I'm so glad that you were here for it. It's absolutely my pleasure. I mean, come on. Just getting together and talking about Avatar with anybody. I, know, I, right? I, I can go out on the street and just start talking to someone about Avatar and I'd have a great time. So. <laughs> totally. So this is a blast. Totally. <sighs> All right, guys. Well, Phil, please remind us again uh, about Rise and where people can find it, where they can find you on social media, etc., so that they can stay close to all of the many things that they should be following with you. Yes. So the book is Rise, a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now. It's out everywhere from HarperCollins. Uh, I wrote it with uh, Jeff Yang and Philip Wang. So check that out. Available wherever books are sold. You can find me on social media at Angry Asian Man on most places and uh, on angryasianman.com, which is my blog that I've been running for 20 plus years. And, Forever. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. And then a shout out to uh, my own podcast. I have two, actually. One is called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. And uh, a little bit of love for my nerdy, geeky podcast, All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. Yes. Go, go download both of those podcasts right now, everyone. What are you waiting for? Get over there. Fantastic. Thanks, everybody. And we will talk to you next time on the podcast. I'll see you guys later. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Avatar Braving the Elements. And hey, make sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a review. All of that really helps the podcast so much. And we love you guys. Next week, we'll be diving into the extensions of the Avatarverse on TikTok with content creators and composers Daniel Mertzleft and Catherine Lynn Rose. You can follow me on social media at the JV Club on Instagram and at Janet Barney on Twitter. And I'm at Dante Bosco on both of those. We'll see you next Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.